Hello, I'm Jeff Lyon for JAMA's Medical News and Perspective section. Last summer, deep disappointment gripped the Alzheimer's disease community when it was announced that the widely heralded experimental drug, LMTX, had failed to help Alzheimer's patients. In November, another promising drug, solanizumab, also dashed hopes. Since these drugs targeted the plaque deposits and the neural tangles in brain tissue characteristic of the disease, some worry that researchers are following the wrong path and are back to square one. Today we have with us two of the world's foremost Alzheimer's researchers, Dr. Rudolf Tanzi of Harvard University and Dr. Baroslav Zlokovich of the University of Southern California. We have asked them here to discuss what the future holds for Alzheimer's research and whether the picture is as gloomy as some believe. Gentlemen, thank you for being with us. Dr. Tanzi, I'd like to start by asking you what the outlook right now is for this disease. Thanks for having me, and actually I'm quite optimistic. I have to say that most of us in the field were not surprised that LMTX failed. I don't think it was, to be frank, that stronger drug going in. I have much more hope for drugs that target amyloid, but target it very early in the disease. And I think that all the original genetics, the first genes we found, told us that amyloid was causing this disease. And the debate about this arose because when we put those genes into mice, they would make amyloid, and eventually there'd be enough inflammation in the brain for the mice to get cognitively impaired, but they didn't get tangles. They didn't get you know all three pillars of the pathology, plaques, tangles, and inflammation. So there was questions. If amyloid doesn't drive tangles, then is it really causing the disease? I always argued, well, they're mice, and humans are not under 50-pound mice. And then more recently, we created what's called Alzheimer's in a Dish. That's what the New York Times dubbed it. 3D human neuroculture made from stem cells that's growing in a gel matrix that mimics the brain. And there, if you put in the Alzheimer's gene mutations that make amyloid, you just wait afterwards and you get tangles from endogenous tau protein. You block the amyloid, you block the tangles. So to me, that was the first real proof of concept that amyloid can make tangles if you use human neurons in the right environment where you mimic a brain organoid. In addition, our results have been now widely replicated. That leaves the question about why the trials failed, the trials that targeted amyloid. And there the answer seems to be that amyloid occurs very early in the disease, pre-symptomatic. 10, 15 years before, and trying to treat a patient who has symptoms of Alzheimer's with an amyloid drug was really like having a patient who had congestive heart failure and had a heart attack, and you give them Lipitor or some cholesterol-lowering drug and say, here, get better. It's just too little too late. But I think we're finally getting a delayed land now, and we know that we have to hit amyloid very early, pre-symptomatically, and this disease begins 15 years before symptoms. You know, we don't call it Alzheimer's until you have symptoms, but if you have a tumor, you have cancer. If you have plaque in your heart, you have heart disease. For some reason, we have to wait till there are symptoms, but it's really medically and scientifically probably not the best idea. Over the years, a number of different theories have been propounded, and sounds to me like you're thinking that there would be a more unified theory of Alzheimer's, which I think would be the goal, right? So for a long time, we debated about what amyloid caused the disease, but it was because in mice, it's just not a good model. But I think now there's general agreement that amyloid can cause inflammation at the level of microglial cells and cause tangle production in, in cells. You can see this in human neurons and 3D cultures. 
And so once this gets going as tangles, then kill more neurons, this causes more inflammation and you get this vicious cycle. So to, to, to me, the question now becomes, why do we accumulate amyloid in our brains? Because amyloid seems to be the most common way to drive tangles. Dr. Zlokovich, you've come at this from a different direction, more of a vascular direction. And that's at one and the same time encouraging and discouraging that there are so many different ways to look at this disease. It really seems pretty complex. The tack you've been taking seems to be that there's a component of not only accumulation of amyloid beta, but a disruption or decline in the ability of the brain to clear that stuff. Can you elaborate on that if I'm getting you correctly? I would say first that there is no so many inconsistency between these theories, you know, because some of these theories feeds to each other. For instance, uh, we've been interested for years about molecular events and cellular events in the vascular system and in blood vessels and how they deal with environment, with the neural environment. So part of this is also amyloid clearance that Rudy was referring to at the beginning. Obviously, amyloid accumulates in the brain, is produced by different brain cells, can come from blood also into the brain. But uh, there is a system that takes care of clearance of amyloid. And that system is so part of the system, which is very strong, is positioned in the blood vessels, in cells called endothelial cells of the blood-brain barrier and also in pericytes. And this system uh, vigorously clears amyloid and other toxins. So in that way, you have that the vascular system, according to my two-hit hypothesis, uh, plays an important role. But also, there is a possibility that we do have influences on the vascular system in so-called non-A-beta positive individuals. And it's a question whether we can define that as a special case of Alzheimer's disease, or we want to define that as a vascular cognitive impairment. As far as patient goes, for patients, it really doesn't matter if you know it's an impairment. But for us who look into how to treat the disease is very important. So how are we going to act on actually getting the disease? So according to the theory we are proposing, amyloid is absolutely not excluded, but is included as an additional step. And this step is obviously also important in the vascular system. But what we are saying is that the changes that precede that step, and what Rudy was talking about, the accumulation of the amyloid, may even happen earlier in the vascular system that do predispose to the accumulation of amyloid. And also may predispose not just accumulation of amyloid, they may also get to reduced oxygen supply to the brain, reduced glucose supply to the brain, sugars, energy, metabolite. So all that is kind of bad going together with the bad. But I think, you know, in my view, uh, vascular system is phenomenal target, you know, because we do have in our brains, yours and mine's and Rudy's, about 400 miles packed blood vessels. And these blood vessels have to do their job. And their primary job is to bring food and oxygen to the brain and take toxins out of the brain. So I think uh, for us to incorporate the vascular component into the overall theory of Alzheimer's disease may just help us uh, to get a more broader inclusive view. So the idea, I think, as we put it, is to attain some kind of homeostasis between the accumulation of amyloid beta and the clearing out of same, which apparently we can do as younger people, but we lose the capacity to do that as we age. 
Yes, that's a part of it. But in addition to that part, could be uh, also a vascular part when we see there is a damage and disturbance in the vascular system that precedes. It's a really the feedback mechanism because amyloid also kills the blood vessels and damages the blood vessels. But if we say that in subset of patients, uh, the disease starts at a level of blood vessels, it may not necessarily read right away to amyloid because there is some compensatory mechanism and blood vessels have a huge ability to compensate. So there is plasticity and et cetera. And there is a fight in this period, 10, 15 years before we see the disease. And then at the end, when this fight is over and when amyloid starts accumulating, we are seeing that's going in the wrong direction. So we are very happy. We just got funded by the NIA and Alzheimer's Association and also through the Duke Foundation, a big program of close to $25 million to study in people who have genetic risk for Alzheimer's, which is APOE4, or familial risk for Alzheimer's, how they develop disease in relation to changes in the vascular system and cognition. So I think it's it's an exciting era. I couldn't agree more with Rudy than that we are in a time where we understand the disease better than ever. And I'm very positive, optimistic also that we will see actually how to arrest the disease and probably even reverse the disease in the near future. Well, that's going to take some pharmaceutical help. Dr. Tanzi, could you maybe address what you see as the more promising drug treatments? I know right after the problem with the drug that failed, there were reports that another drug, a monoclonal antibody, actually reduced some of the problems with cognition in certain patients. Could you elaborate on that, please? Yeah, sure. And I I just want to also say that I think, you know, I had mentioned that something's coming before amyloid. I mean, amyloid is a very potent way to trigger tangled cell death and inflammation. But you have to ask, you know, what's making amyloid accumulate? We mentioned production, we mentioned clearance, and the antibody has to do with clearance. But there's another factor that we don't think enough about. The original amyloidologist who studied Alzheimer's, George Glenner and others, they probably had it right when they said Alzheimer's is an amyloidosis of the brain. And this was modified later on into the cascade hypothesis of many, many different events from amyloid to tangles and cell death. But in in our 3D cultures of human neurons, amyloid directly leads to tangles. So the question then becomes, if amyloid can directly lead to tangles and inflammation, what's the event before? And I think this is where Betz's work is the key, that neurovascular events are the key, especially events that open the blood-brain barrier and let in foreign agents, pathogens. And it's interesting how back in the 60s, we said hardening of the arteries led to dementia. The original scientists in the 70s said, the amyloid causes the disease, it's an amyloidosis, this was George Glenner and others, and others said, and the reason why you're getting the amyloid is you're opening the blood-brain barrier and things are entering the brain. It's almost like we're going back to what they they said, (laughs) and we we kind of went the wrong direction for a while. Luckily, the therapies uh, that we're excited about uh, are aimed at hitting the amyloid early. So back in 2005, we had a paper that showed autoantibodies to ligamers of amyloid. And we showed that the higher the titers of those autoantibodies to oligomers, the more protected you were against Alzheimer's. And, and argued that if you're going to make an, a monoclonal, it should mimic the autoantibodies. And our paper got tough reviews because people said, well, the brain doesn't have a lymphatic system. How is the adaptive immune system seeing amyloid oligomers that are only in the brain? Well, now we know they get out. We know the brain does have a lymphatic system as of recently. 
So uh, aducanumab, which came really from Neuromune and Zurich, they picked up on this idea. And what they did was, in, uh, uh, this is Roger Nietzsche and Christoph Hoch very cleverly said, let's find those autoantibodies that are protective. And they took the oldest people who are cognitively intact, took the memory B cells, found autoantibodies that uh, similar to the ones we described. And this turned into now what I think is probably the most promising drug in the clinic, given the results we've seen from their phase one. So they went right to phase three. I think this also empowered those making base inhibitors. These are the uh, blocking that rate-limiting first step that cleaves the amyloid precursor protein to make a beta. And those are now jumping right from phase one to phase three. In my lab, we're making what are called gamma secretase modulators. These block that second clip to produce the A-beta. So we're hitting A-beta on all sides, but the key is going to be, and I think this is really important, to convince the FDA that we have to hit amyloid before symptoms. Alzheimer's has to enter this realm of treating it, not preventing it, but treating it pre-symptomatically at the level of amyloid onward. And according to Betz's work, at the level of the neurovasculature and the blood-brain barrier. And we also think we know what enters the brain to trigger amyloid because equally important to production and clearance is nucleation and seeding. And we just recently had a paper this past year that showed that microbes, bacteria, viruses, and funguses can rapidly trigger amyloid deposition. And it looks like amyloid is acting as an antimicrobial response to pathogens. So this is a brand new paradigm but it sets a hypothesis for what's coming into the brain and then triggering the amyloid deposition as an early step that works into the neurovasculature. So pathogens may be involved here, and the amyloid is really the brain's response to that invasion? That's what our paper says. So we showed in five different animal models using yeast, bacteria, and virus that amyloid is very effective at protecting against infection. For example, we can protect against viral-driven encephalitis in mice by having amyloid present. So now we're carrying out what we call the brain microbiome project, which sounds really funny because the brain's supposed to be sterile, but it's not sterile. As we get older, and again, this gets back to the neurovasculature, blood-brain barrier breaks are letting in pathogens, just like they said in the 70s. And what we see is that in these model systems, these pathogens trigger amyloid deposition by seeding overnight. It's not years of production and clearance in this case. You get instant nucleation. A herpes virus, for example, can cause nucleation of amyloid in a mouse in six hours. Dr. Zlokovich, if it's important to reach patients before they start to become symptomatic, what signs are we looking for? How are we going to identify these people early? I mean, obviously, the reason that we're treating people who are already showing symptoms is because it's very easy to pick them out. But what should we be looking for in, say, somebody who's 40 years old? We do have one approach that we have developed here at USC, which is use of very powerful new neuroimaging systems to detect the integrity and composition of blood vessels. What we first observed in people that are completely cognitively normal, they start having a gradual damage with the normal aging. And if these people develop subjective cognitive complaints or objective cognitive problems that we can see on neuropsychological tests, we see that this correlates very strongly with the changes in the blood vessels. And we have this breakdown of the blood-brain barrier that Rudy was mentioning. We have it in the hippocampus. And hippocampus and parahippocampal regions. So these are areas that are actually very heavily involved in memory and learning. 
some degree of the damage in certain people who develop cognitive problems are actually much bigger than what we see during normal aging. We know that there are genetic risk factors for Alzheimer's disease, like APOE4 gene is one of the key factors. So we are looking in people who are asymptomatic. We are looking what kind of problems in a neurovasculature they have. And we also are getting from these people cerebrospinal fluid because we have developed specific molecular markers for the cells that are part of the blood-brain barrier. There are three, four different types of cells, including endothelial cells, including pericytes, including astrocytes. And we are looking whether the signals that come from these cells, and the cell says, oh, I'm injured, I'm suffering, I have a problem, whether we can see that. And so what's beautiful about that approach is that if we identify this, what is happening, we then have a vascular system to be as a powerful target. Because in addition to the strategies such as clear the amyloid and et cetera, we have to fix this vascular system as well. We have pathogens coming through the blood-brain barrier, they have amyloid. So if we don't close this blood-brain barrier, they will keep coming. We can start treating amyloid, but they will keep coming. We have a, in a second phase two finishing trial with activated protein C, which is a molecule that we develop based on our work and work uh, also uh, in collaboration with Scripps, and that basically stabilizes blood vessels and protect neurons and protects blood vessels from injury that comes from reductions of the blood flow to the brain. So we know now from studies that we do in animal models and also in neurological models using stem cell technology of Alzheimer's disease, and that these drugs can stabilize the vasculature. So I believe that stabilizing vascular system would be an important thing as we think how we're going to develop future therapy for Alzheimer's disease. We need to prevent amyloid accumulation and everything, but we need to stop damage of the vascular system because clearing environment all the time and not protecting what caused the damage is going to be resulting in a filling up again with amyloid and all this stuff. So we clear the pre-existing amyloid, we don't fix vessels, we get more coming in. So I believe the combined approaches in which vascular system is protected will be very important. Let me go back to the amyloid figuring into infection. Dr. Tanzi, you were talking about this a few minutes ago. So the amyloid moves in, fights off the invader, but what happens next? Why does the amyloid go bad after it's done its job? The amyloid beta protein is acting like a classic antimicrobial peptide. So what's happening is really nothing new to those who study antimicrobial peptides like LL37 or the Fensins in the innate immune system. The way they work, and this is exactly how A-beta works, is the peptide sees the pathogen, it binds to carbohydrates and sugars on the cell wall, and in doing so, it starts to clump the pathogens. And so first it, it blocks adhesion to the host cell, then it agglutinates them and starts to clump them, and then it literally builds a web around them. And in an innate immune uh, field, that's called a nanonet, in Alzheimer's disease, that's called the plaque. So in this case, the amyloid plaque is actually the tomb or the prison of a pathogen that has now been trapped into this web of amyloid. And we actually, in our paper, show that whole process, blocking adhesion, agglutination, followed by the formation of the plaque around the pathogen. But we don't know what in the brain is doing this. So we have to go in there agnostically. I know there are people who have their favorites out there, chlamydia, borrelia, Herpes. 
we're going in agnostically. We started this project called the Brain Microbiome Project, funded by Cure Alzheimer's Fund and another foundation, Open Philanthropy. And we're actually purifying plaques and then looking by RNA sequencing what types of pathogens were trapped inside the plaque. But we're not coming up with any favorite candidates. We're just doing this unbiased. And then we'll see what the culprits are. And I think that in the future, besides hitting amyloid early, like Betsa said, you keep those blood vessels healthy. We're thinking about how the blood-brain barrier can be strengthened. There's lots of interesting data on how the gut microbiome via the gut-brain axis through the vagus nerve can help strengthen the blood-brain barrier. But just in case we fail at that, we can also think about the most common pathogens that are driving rapidly amyloid deposition and perhaps go after them with antivirals or antibiotics or even vaccination. So it might be a very different world uh, five years from now in terms of how we think about this disease. Let's get back to talking about tangles for a minute. From what I've read of your work, it's pretty clear that amyloid is causing the tangles. Am I correct? Amyloid is one way to cause tangles, and it's the way to get tangles in Alzheimer's. But of course, in chronic traumatic encephalopathy, you can get tangles by enough banks to the head. So we're just saying amyloid is the most common way as we age to drive tangle formation, and then we call this Alzheimer's. But you can have frontal temporal lobar dementias, Hicks disease, other ways to get tangles, but they're less common. The reason I'm talking about this is because some people say that the tangles are actually able to act like prions. In fact, I think Stanley Prusner calls them prions in a recent paper. He actually said right out that the oligomers are prions and that they can jump from cell to cell and possibly from person to person. But what are we going to do about that? Is the theory that we'll get rid of the amyloid and the tangles will take care of themselves or what? I think the jury's still out. I mean, we do see that when there are tangles in one region of the brain, we then later see tangles in other regions and you see a spread of tangles. And there is a hypothesis that the tangles are literally spreading, that the tangles are being spit out by neurons, being taken up by healthy neurons, and then you're getting new tangles. I think it's still debatable. I think that that happens, but I don't know if it's just a tangle-driven process. I think amyloid is still playing an a, a integrative role that it, as neurons are dying with tangles and amyloids coming in at synapses, driving more tangles. I frankly am not fully convinced that tangles are spreading in a prion-like mechanism, although it's still a viable hypothesis that hasn't been ruled out. I'd like to hear Betz's view, too. Absolutely. I'm going to bring uh, just another angle to this coming from the vascular system. I think in years going, let's say, 15 years ago, we just accidentally discovered that tau, which is in the center of this uh, tangles, accumulates in response to hyperperfusion of the brain or low brain perfusion, or if you have a breakdown of the blood-brain barrier. So I would say that these processes are again interconnected. And if we think about the tau, I would say again, we should have also healthy blood vessels and healthy neurovasculature to maintain and reduce and minimize the possibility while we are trying to remove amyloid and we're trying to remove tau that we also may remove some contributory factors that come from vascular system that predispose their constant accumulation. So the message here is we need healthy blood vessels to have a healthy brain and healthy brain is brain without amyloid and tau because when they start accumulating in strategically important regions, we have problems. 
We were talking about healthy vasculature, and one of the things that has been coming to the fore recently is kind of an old antidote, that is exercise. And when I first read about this, I was thinking, oh, this is kind of a lame sort of attempt to just have us all lead good, healthy lives. But from what you're saying, the vasculature is directly related to your aerobics and so on. So there's definitely a scientific basis for saying the more exercise you get, the better off you will be at staving off some of these dementias. Is that right? Yes. I would definitely agree uh, with that approach because the, uh, the, this exercise put the whole cardiovascular system at work. And brain receives 20% of cardiac output, right? Which is brain is small, 2% of the mass, but receives one quarter of our output. When we exercise, we actually contribute to better vasculature in the brain. And also, we know that the brain vasculature has a tremendous plasticity. I'm going to give you another example. If you go to Breckenridge for diamond skiing, right, which is 12,000 feet, your blood vessels will multiply within three or four days, and you will have 30% or more blood vessels in the brain. Brain has that amazing plasticity to sense less oxygen, and the physical exercise puts brain constantly on some kind of exercise. I would just add to that that, I mean, it's been shown that if you have mice with Alzheimer's genes in them getting amyloid and inflammation, the effects of exercise are the following. They induce the enzymes that degrade amyloid. They induce neurogenesis in the hippocampus. And if you induce neurogenesis pharmacologically or genetically, those stem cells won't survive if the brain there has inflammation. But if you induce neurogenesis with exercise, at the same time, you clean up the neighborhood of inflammation. You turn on TGF-beta, you turn off IL-1-beta and TNF-alpha, you clean the neighborhood, and now these new stem cells can live. So there are multiple benefits to bringing more blood to the brain. One thing that I don't think we've covered maybe sufficiently is that the inflammation that you're talking about, how is that generated? And is there any way that offers a chance of treatment? The newest genes we found in Alzheimer's over the last uh, five or 10 years really bring us to innate immunity and neuroinflammation. In 2008, we found a new Alzheimer's gene called CD33. We had no idea what it was doing. Now we know that CD33 is the switch. It turns on the microglial cells such that microglial cells, instead of being protective for the brain and housekeeping and sentinels, turned into soldiers who were shooting out free radicals and cytokines, causing neuronal cell death, really due to friendly fire, collateral damage, because you have inflamed astrocytes and microglia. CD33 turns it on, and then another gene that was found for Alzheimer's called TREM2 turns it off. So we now know TREM2 and CD33 are the are yin and yang of microglial-activated neuroinflammation in the brain. And now it appears that in pharma, after APP, the amyloid precursor protein, the most targeted gene right now is CD33 because folks are trying to figure out ways to turn it off as a way to, for lack of a better word, chill out the microglia so that they keep housekeeping, they keep protecting and nurturing the brain rather than becoming these crazy soldiers shooting up free radicals and cytokines. So this is a very, very active area now in academia and pharma to understand neuroinflammation and Alzheimer's at the level of microglial activation. And the way to think about it is, as amyloid and tangles are killing neurons, 
when neurons are dying, the brain senses this. The microglial cells are also sentinels. And they assumed if neurons are dying, it must be an immune insult. So they start shooting out free radicals and causing gliosis to protect the brain. But in the end, it's that friendly fire and collateral damage probably kills more neurons than the original amyloid entangles. That's when you really go down the slippery slope. I'll add one more point here at Mass General, Teresa Gomez-Izla collects brains full of plaques and tangles where people died in the 80s and 90s, but they didn't have any cognitive issues. In every single case, they have one thing in common, no gliosis, no inflammation. So we actually did whole genome sequencing on them, and we found some interesting novel mutations in some of these innate immune genes that have been implicated in Alzheimer's, but now testing if those might be protective. So let me look maybe down the road a little bit. In fact, I want to get a kind of timetable from both of you as to when we might be seeing the fruits of this very promising research. Dr. Zlokovich? Let me just make one more comment on inflammation because we, we were interested about 15 years ago, we published paper in Nature about amyloid beta crossing from blood to brain uh, using the RAGE receptor and then making a tremendous inflammatory response during this transfer process. For example, increasing uh, cytokines such as TNF-alpha, IL-6, causing oxidant stress, and et cetera. And we described that these mechanisms go in the vasculature because when, when it happens in the vasculature, you do have also blood-brain barrier breakdown because a lot of these inflammatory cytokines do cause blood-brain barrier breakdown on their own, right? And so we did, at that time, we were very interested to study that and also how this influences blood flow to the brain because a lot of this also uh, caused a reduction in the blood flow. And one of the mechanisms is through endothelin-1 that is secreted by endothelial cells that cause, you know, restriction and constriction of the blood vessels. So I would like to mention that and to add to this uh, inflammatory comment. But in general, I think because we understand so much what's going on is that we should tack on many different fronts. I don't know if there are going to be one single drag on one single approach that will work because it's a complex disease, as you heard, has a vascular component, inflammatory component, amyloid beta component, tau component, all these components feeds to each other. So I think my recipe for this would be let's fix vascular system. Let's make sure that amyloid does not accumulate in the brain. Let's create situation that amyloid can get out to the brain. Let's maintain good blood flow to the brain and make sure that blood flow is good and it's not going to get to the accumulation of tau and etc. Now, if we don't catch disease at that stage and we're going to a later stage that we see patients right now with amyloid coming up or tau coming up, then again, we have to do the same routine. Let's go back. Let's fix blood vessels because we can try to reduce amyloid. We can try to reduce tau. But if we forget to fix the blood system of the brain and neurovasculature, we won't be removing one of the very important contributory factors, which is not good because it gets you less oxygen, gets you less blood flow, gives you leaky blood vessels, and et cetera. So I think an uh, approach that uh, I can see is including a lot of these components together. First, I would say that I fully agree with my friend and colleague here, Dr. Zlokovic, about what we have to do. Fix the neurovasculature early and throughout, hit amyloid early, hit tangles early, hit inflammation throughout. To me, it's too late to hit amyloid, maybe even tangles, once a patient is in the full throes of this disease symptomatic. And this is a mistake we've made. 
And if patients have the disease right now, I think you really have to stop inflammation. And like Betsa says, keep their vessels healthy if you want to help them. Just stopping amyloid at that point is like giving somebody a cholesterol drug or after they already have congestive heart failure. And the FDA really needs to get this. I hope they hear this discussion. But in timeline, we'll hear about aducanumab and the other antibodies over the next three or four years. The base inhibitors block a beta production just going into phase three. We'll hear about those over the next three or four years. Same thing with the gamma secretase modulators. So I think over the next three to five years, we're going to get a lot of answers about whether hitting amyloid is going to help. But the problem is we're still treating symptomatic people with these amyloid treatments, and it still might be too late. Even with mild patients, it still might be too late. And I worry that if these trials fail, they're going to blame the hypothesis and not the timing of the drug. That would be very bad because in the end, I do think we're going to stop this disease just like Betsa said, keep the neurovascular healthy early on. We need to track inflammation with better imaging and biomarkers early on. And we need to stop the amyloid deposition. That means hitting production, fostering clearance. And I would add stopping nucleation and seeding where you have pathogens going through the blood-brain barrier at a compromised region causing rapid nucleation of amyloid. That's the way forward. And I think getting to the inflammation-based drugs to hit microglial cells, that's probably where we're farthest behind, but at least we have the gene targets to work on, CD33 and TREM2. This is for both of you. Is there any indication that somebody who already has fairly well-developed Alzheimer's, that there could be some cognitive gain, some regeneration of cognitive ability, or is it just that whatever is done is done? I think if you stop the inflammation and keep their vessels healthy, never underestimate the ability of the brain to regenerate. I completely agree. We had, for example, in stroke, you know, we just published paper in Nature Medicine in which we give to mice two weeks after stroke, we give them neural stem cells and uh, tricky tree APC to make neurons. And it's amazing what brain can do. Uh, there is a possibility that grafted neurons uh, make a contact with neurons of the host. So definitely, we should never underestimate the brain capability to repair itself. The only problem when you mentioned at the beginning, it's a like in a cancer. The later you start, the chances to treat are actually uh, lower. I'm not saying it's hopeless, but it's more challenging because caramelloid and tau, they run through your brain and they destroy it a lot. So the brain has a larger task now to mount back all this response and has to remember and configure the way how to do it. Well, in line with that, I'd like to explore what the future might hold in terms of early spotting of people with a tendency. 25 years ago, men were kind of flying blind as far as prostate cancer, and we came up with a PSA test that's kind of controversial, but it does offer a way to screen and assess prostate health. What could we do in this case? Would there be some kind of a recommended MRI, say, at the age of 40 or something of that nature? There's PET scanning for amyloid that's already FDA approved. It's just not covered by health insurance because it's you know not actionable. Although you could argue that lifestyle interventions may be actionable if you know you're in some trouble with too much amyloid in your brain. But I think someday, at least with imaging, you can know what percentile of amyloid deposition in your brain you're at at your age. And if we have monoclonals or other types of small molecules that can slow down amyloid production, you know, you may have to start that at 40 or 50 years old. You have your brain imaged by PET, and you say, hey, your amyloid level is in the 60th percentile. 
uh, we need to bring your amyloid levels down uh, with this antibody followed by maintenance with this drug. And that means we also need to start taking care of your brain more, your vessels more. And you need to change your lifestyle. You know, you need to exercise more, diet, get more sleep. So this is, I think, the future. Well, we've been speaking with Dr. Baroslav Zlokovich of the University of Southern California and Dr. Rudolf Tanzi of Harvard University. Gentlemen, I want to thank you so much for visiting with us today and giving us some very encouraging research news on a subject that seldom seems to generate much good news. And thanks to all of you out there for listening. I'm Jeff Lyon with JAMA Medical News. For more podcasts, visit us at jamanetworkaudio.com. You can subscribe to our podcasts on iTunes and Stitcher. Thanks again.